This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. We'll open this, our seventh shiur on Masechet Rosh Hashanah, with a summary of Perak Bet of Rosh Hashanah, sum up some of our conclusions, add a few points that we didn't have a chance to make in our last shiur, and uh, with a summary of the first two chapters of Rosh Hashanah, which form a unit discussing the Halachot of Kiddush HaChodesh. The uh, second chapter of Masechet Rosh Hashanah links up with a theme that's a very central theme in a lot of the Talmudic literature, theme that uh, plays a major role already in Tanaitic sources, such as the uh, Sifra, the Tarat Kohanim, uh, uh, as well as in the uh, Tosefta, the idea that the uh, sanctification of the new moon is uh, is accomplished paradoxically by man rather than by uh, God himself. Uh, this idea, as I say, is uh, prominently featured in the Sifra in Parashat Emor, which has a discussion of the Halachot of Kiddusha Chodesh, and it appears as well in a Tosefta that we've already had opportunity to refer to, in Perak Aleph, Halacha Yud Aleph, Im Kidshuhu Beitin Hadin Nichnas Lefanav, Vimlav Ein Hadin Nichnas Lefanav. Even though we're talking about Din, Din, we would think would depend upon the Ribbono Shalom, he would establish when he judges the world, when he judges Israel. However, the uh, Tosefta notes, Im Kidshuhu Beitin Hadin Nichnas Lefanav. The Beitin is actually the one who establishes the sanctification of the new month on the part of, uh, 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 sanctifies the new month, and the judgment of God then responds to that. This, of course, is very similar to the idea that appears at the very end of Rosh Hashanah Perak Bet, in the words of uh, Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rabbi Akiva, who, um, in his drasha before Rabbi Yoshua, uh, says, Eilem o'adei Hashem ikrei kodesh ashe tigruotam, bein bizmanan, bein shelo bizmanan, ein li mo'adot ela elu. Whether at their appointed time or not, or not at their set time, these are the only mo'adot that I have, ein li mo'adot, these are the ones that I, namely God, uh, recognizes. And as we saw last time, um, this was uh, a very crucial point in convincing Rabbi Yoshua that uh, only Rabban Gamliel's day would have uh, would have validity. Of course, as we saw last time, he also needed Rabbi Dosa to determine whether his day or Rabban Gamliel's day was the authoritative uh, one, but this was the one, as we saw last time, that convinced him that there was no point in celebrating two days of Yom Kippur, because Ainli Mo'adot Ela Elu, it is the court that determines, it's man that uh, uh, that determines when uh, when Rosh Chodesh will be. So 
The Mishnah at this point links up with a common theme in the Tanaitic literature. It's taken up later on in many, many uh, uh, later Midrashim as well, that God has handed over the keys to uh, maintaining the calendar and sanctifying the holy days on the calendar to man, to Am Yisrael, and uh, ultimately to the Beitin, who stands at the head of uh, at the head of uh, of Am Yisrael. Uh, we'll be coming back uh, a little later on to discuss this uh, uh, this point and to uh, um, and to see what the Mishnah does with it. But first like to note what the Mishnah adds that we don't find in any of the other sources, not in the Midrash HaLacha, not in uh, the Tosefta, only in the Mishnah we find the focus not only on man being the one to sanctify the, uh, uh, the, the new moon and the festivals, but the fact that uh, insofar as it's man who sanctifies the festivals, the question arises, well, which man? Uh, who exactly is it among men who has that authority? The answer that it's the Beitin, of course, is a simplistic answer. And the Mishnah uh, illustrates to us uh, very clearly in many ways that, uh, that, in fact, this is a rather problematic point. Who is it who has the power to do it? And in, in the second parak of Masachat Rosh Hashanah, the chapter ends and closes with very uh, bitter disputes surrounding that very point. Who is it who is authorized to sanctify the new moon? At the beginning of the chapter, it's the Minim and the Kutim at the, during the period of Bayit Sheni who uh, present a challenge to the authority of the Beitin in Yerushalayim, and the Beitin, in confronting this challenge, is not only uh, maintaining the calendar the way that Chazal felt that the calendar ought to be maintained, but also is uh, preserving their authority. And as we saw, the uh, uh, double movement of Edim coming to the court and of the Masuot, and later on the Shluchim, emerging from the court and going out to the people is a way of the court um, manifesting to the entire people that they, in fact, are the spiritual central authority of the uh, of the Jewish people uh, as a whole. Just as in, at the beginning of the chapter, we had these two outside splinter groups uh, challenging the authority of the court, at the end of the chapter, we have an internal dispute within the court between, this is already in the period of Yavne, and in the period of Yavne, where it seems that the uh, chain of authority, even within the world of the Chachamim, is much less clear. Uh, here we have a challenge by Rabbi Dosa, partially, but mostly from Rabbi Yoshua, to the authority of Rabban Gamliel as the Nasi as the head of the uh, of the court, and the story ends, of course, with a uh, dramatic reaffirmation of this authority by Rabban uh, uh, by Rabban Gamliel. Now, this idea that the uh, authorizing man 
to maintain the calendar and to determine when the sanctified days will occur is something that will uh, lead to uh, social division, in fact, to uh, some uh, political uh, maneuvering. Uh, this is an idea that's unique to the Mishnah. Okay? The Mishnah is really taking one step further the idea that the uh, sanctification of the of the calendar, insofar as it's entrusted to man, is going to require a clear definition and delineation of the lines of authority. Which man exactly is it? Which men exactly are they who will be able to uh, uh, to actually exercise and wield uh, and wield that authority? Uh, at the end of the chapter. The answer is proposed by Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas when he explains to Rabbi Yoshua why he must recognize the authority of Rabban Gamliel's court because this is the Beitin Shamdu al Yisrael. This is the the Beitin that uh, was recognized and accepted by the public, and we have this dialectical interaction between public recognition of authority and the very existence of that authority. Authority exists when it's recognized by the public. And Rabban Gamaliel's authority exists ultimately because Rabbi Yoshua, understanding that this authority has been accepted by the public, decides that he has to be part of that public as well. He has no right to challenge that authority so long as the public recognizes it and by then accepting the authority, he in fact reinfirms and reconstitutes that, that self-same authority. And so this dialectical circle of uh, how authority is to be defined and maintained is a point that's unique to the Mishnah. The Mishnah uh, notes that entrusting things to man inevitably subjects it to the uh, social dynamic of any society uh, of men. The end of the chapter in particular gives us a very dramatic illustration of the problematic involved in entrusting this authority uh, to man because when Rabbi Yoshua has to struggle throughout this story with the uh, conflict, his own inner conflict of values between uh, what he feels to be the truth, what he's firmly convinced is the truth, the divine truth, and what he knows to be the authoritative statement by a duly constituted court. Uh, the the whole dramatic story of how Ra- uh, Rabbi Yoshua struggles with that and the dramatic picture at the end of Rabbi, Rabbi Yoshua trudging all the way to Yavne on the day that he felt was actually Yom Kippur. It or at least should have been Yom Kippur, uh, this is a very dramatic uh, affirmation of how when things are entrusted to man, so they're inevitably beset with conflicts, with doubts, with with uh, 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 clashes, even clashes that have uh, that might have a political component, uh, a conflict of personalities. All of these become inevitably uh, bound up with how the holiest days on the Jewish calendar are going to be uh, established and how they're going to be defined and maintained. 
It bears noting in this context that, as we know today from the Book of Jubilees and the Temple Scroll and several other uh, Second Temple sectarian works, uh, the calendar that was commonly observed by uh, Kitot, by sects uh, outside of the uh, mainstream halacha of the Prushim, of Chazal, that, that we follow, uh, their calendar uh, was generally a 364-day-a-year solar calendar, uh, which did not in any way take into account the vagaries of the moon, the uncertainty of whether the moon would be sighted on one day or another. This was a well-ordered, uh, well-established calendar where uh, since 364 is a multiple of seven, every year uh, the uh, Chagim came out on exactly the same day. And there was never any conflicts between the mitzvot of the Chagim and Shabbat. This was the calendar that they normally followed, and it's readily seen that this solar calendar represented uh, an attempt to let the calendar be managed by nature, or in other words, to be managed by God, which is part of the whole sectarian philosophy that the Torah is completely divine. Torah is completely divine. Its interpretation is done only through divine inspiration. And so too the calendar is divinely ordained and well-ordered as we would expect a divine creation to be. Uh, as opposed to this, the uh, calendar presented in our Mishnah follows the basic approach to Halachav Chazal in which there is tremendous room within the halachic world for human interpretation and for human creativity. Ultimately, the halacha, which is divine law, is subject to the ability of man to understand it, to interpret it, to apply it, to employ all of his understanding and creative powers to making sense of the divine halacha. To conclude our discussion of the first two chapters of Masech Rosh Hashanah, I'd like to look again at the uh, very profound and very beautiful connection drawn between these two chapters by the two very similar chapter endings. The first chapter ending with Al-Mahalach Laila Vayom Mechalinat HaShabbat Yotzin Leidut HaChodesh Shenemar Elem Moadei Hashem since you have to uh, proclaim the new months at their appointed times, therefore the witnesses should even violate Shabbat. And the very different, nearly opposite use of this Pasuk by a, a, a Rabbi Akiva and his Drasha, that you shall proclaim, leaving out the word Bimoadam and replacing it with Ben Bismanan, Ben Shalo Bismanan. You can't escape the impression that the uh, Mishnah wants to uh, confront you with two almost opposite interpretations of the very same Pasuk. At the end of the first chapter, we're told Bimoadam. You must insist on its being at the right time. Uh, once the witnesses cite it, let them set out for uh, the Beitin right away, even if it involves Chilul Shabbat. 
On the other hand, at the end of Perak Bet, it doesn't matter. Ben Bismanan, Ben Shalob Bismanan, Eli Elu. Okay, it doesn't matter whether it's the right time or not. God says, I'll abide by whatever man determines. If the court determines one day, I'll accept that. If it determines another day, even if it's the wrong day, I'll accept that as well. And uh, you sort of wonder, after seeing Rabbi Akiva's drasha, what was it really necessary for the witnesses to to uh, uh, to violate Shabbat? I mean, after all, Bimwadam seems to be not that important, so unimportant, in fact, that Rabbi Akiva deletes the word from his citation of the Pasuk and replaces it with almost the exactly opposite idea, Ben Bismanan, Ben She Lo Bismanan. Um, the apparent contradiction between these two drashot can be easily resolved because uh, we know in the halacha that there are certain halachot that exist l'chatchila and not v'diavad. Let's take an example which also involves Chilul Shabbat. Let's say that you have a baby born. Uh, the eighth day after he's born is on Shabbat. So you do the Brit on Shabbat. The Brit, of course, involves Chilul Shabbat. And the reason we violate Shabbat is because the Torah says, Uvayom Hashmini Yimol Besar It must be done on the eighth day. And that means even if it involves violation of Shabbat. Of course, if you didn't do the Brit, on the eighth day, you can do it on the ninth day, the tenth day, or whenever. Uh, mitzvah, of course, do it as soon as possible, but it can be done any time after the eighth day. So why is it that we violate the Shabbat? The answer, of course, is because while it could be done at any time, the mitzvah is to do it on the eighth day, and the Torah regards that mitzvah as important enough to even set aside Shabbat, even though B'diavad, if it's done at any other time afterwards, it would also be valid. By the same token, the first chapter tells us, B'mo'adam, it's a mitzvah to establish the months at their right time, at their appointed time. That's the mitzvah. It's a very important mitzvah. So important that we even violate the Shabbat. But Rabbi Akiva is talking about B'diavad. Rabban Gamliel established the new month, when he thought it should be, but Rabbi Yoshua is firmly convinced that he made a mistake. It was wrong. So it's not that Rabban Gamliel uh, didn't want to perform the mitzvah of Bimo'adam. He wanted to. But Rabbi Akiva says, Bimo'adam is only lechatchila. Bimo'adam is only how man should try to find the right time to sanctify the new moon. That you shall proclaim. That's what determines. Whenever we proclaim uh, is when God will recognize the day to be sanctified. So there's no contradiction. It's man who has the authority. God granted him the authority and therefore also recognizes whatever man has decided. But the mitzvah is bimuadam. The mitzvah is to try as hard as possible to have our human decision conform to what God has decided up above in the heavens when the new moon actually uh, actually appears. So we can reconcile the two psukim, but I think that the Mishnah is not interested only in the reconciliation. I think the Mishnah, perhaps even more than the reconciliation, is interested in the tension. 
The Mishnah at the end of the first chapter wants us to understand that sanctification of the new moon is divine and is therefore a weighty human responsibility. Man is charged with trying as hard as possible to approximate his decision to uh, what God has determined up above in the heaven. And the end of the second chapter tells us that it's man who has the authority and God will recognize whatever man decides. There's a tension between these two ideas, not a contradiction, but a tension. And again, I think the Mishnah is interested not only in how we resolve the tension on a practical level, but on how we are aware of the tension on a theoretical level. And that's why the, the two chapters end with seemingly opposite ideas uh, in order to bring home to the student of the Mishnah that, yes, practically on a halachic level, we know how we're supposed to carry it out. We know what to do l'chatchila, and we know what to do b'diavad. But the very tension between l'chatchila and b'diavad uh, is a tension that, that, that should concern us. We should be aware that uh, according authority to man is something that's always ridden with tension and closing the second chapter with a very dramatic story and confrontation of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabban Gamliel brings that very point home. It brings home to us in the most clear and dramatic way what tensions are embedded in this uh, partnership between God and man involved in sanctifying the new moon. Okay, with that we'll close our discussion of the first two chapters and we'll turn now to the third chapter of Masechet Rosh Hashanah. Uh, the third chapter deals mostly with the laws of Tkiat Shofar and there are two Mishnayot that are exceptions to this rule. The two of them are, interestingly, the first Mishnah and the last Mishnah, or to be more precise, the first part of the last Mishnah. These two apparently uh, have nothing to do with the uh, Tkiat Shofar, with the blowing of the Shofar. The first Mishnah of the chapter seems to be a kind of appendix to the laws of Kiddush HaChodesh, and it's quite puzzling that this Mishnah was left out of the discussion of Kiddush HaChodesh, it could easily have been incorporated into uh, the first two prakim, and in fact, uh, a bit later on, we'll see exactly where it would have made sense for the Mishnah to incorporate this uh, um, uh, this particular Mishnah. Um, so that's the first Mishnah, which seems to be out of place in the chapter. And the other Mishnah that, at first blush, seems to be out of place in the chapter is uh, the opening of Mishnah Chet, which discusses the uh, hands of Moshe in the war against Amalek. What what is their purpose? What is the purpose of Moshe raising his hands? How does that grant Israel victory uh, against Amalek? And a similar question regarding the Nechash Nechoshet, the brazen serpent. How is it that gazing upon the brazen serpent uh, healed Israelites who had been uh, bitten by uh, real live serpents. Um, so this discussion in, in in this Mishnah on the surface has very little to do with Tkiat Shofar. The second cha- uh, question is much easier to answer uh, than the first, at least on the 
surface level, if you look at what the, the Mishnah says, it tells us, uh, to the hands of Moshe, uh, wage war or uh, destroy a war, in other words, uh, uh, produce defeat. As long as Israel were looking upwards, that's the text that we have in our printed Mishnayot, uh, and they subjugate their hearts to their father in heaven. Uh, in uh, most manuscripts we have here, and direct their hearts to their Father in Heaven, then, then they would uh, be victorious, and if not, um, they would be defeated. And similarly with the Nechash and Nechoshet, uh, here again, our printed version has Mishabdim uh, Libam, and uh, many of the Manuscript versions have mechavnim at libam. It should be noted that in uh, many of the manuscripts, in one case it says mechavnim, and in the next case it says mishabdim. Uh, but uh, uh, be that as it may, even according to the gersa of the printed versions of the Mishnah, where um, the the hands of Moshe cause Israel and the Nechash Nechoshet does a similar thing, uh, we can see a clear connection between this Agadic Mishnah uh, and the Halachic Mishnah which precedes it, which talks about a person who uh, is walking outside of a shawl and hears a shofar, if he directs his heart, kivain libo, yatsa, then he fulfills the mitzvah, bim lav, lo yatsa. So we would then see a connection between kivain libo in this Mishnah and lesha'abed at libam, uh, to subjugate their hearts in the next Mishnah. All the more so if we accept, as I believe we should, the uh, girsah of the uh, manuscripts, the Mishnah manuscripts, in which uh, what Moshe's hands accomplish when he raises them heavenward is not that Israel looks at his hands and subjugates their hearts, but rather umechavnim at libam ravihem shabashamayim. They direct their hearts to their Father in heaven, and this creates a very interesting interplay between the halachic statement uh, in Mish- at the end of Mishnah Zayin, which talks about how the halacha requires a person to direct his heart to fulfill the mitzvah in order to uh, uh, for the mitzvah to actually be be considered done, performed, uh, and the agadic requirement in Mishnachet of directing the heart, in this case, not to direct it to perform an action in a certain way and, and with a certain purpose, but rather to direct one's heart towards uh, his Father in Heaven. And when he directs his heart towards his Father in Heaven, then uh, the agadic result, of course, is not to fulfill the mitzvah. The agadic 
uh, result here is to be delivered, to actually emerge victorious from one's confrontation uh, either with the enemy, Amalek, or with death after having bitten, uh, been bitten by, by a serpent. Okay, th- this is a classic instance of how an agadic uh, unit in the Mishnah interacts with a uh, with an adjacent uh, halachic uh, unit, and uh, we'll come back and examine this in somewhat greater detail uh, later on. But uh, in any event, we've seen enough to understand that Mishnachet, although on the surface it seems to have nothing to do with the laws of Shofar, but inasmuch as it expands upon the theme of Kavanat Halev, of directing the heart, it would seem that it does have a message with regard to blowing the shofar as well. One who blows the shofar should not only direct his heart halachically to fulfill the mitzvah, as in Mishnah Zayin, but juxtaposing the Agadic Mishnachet seems to suggest it's uh, required that he also direct his heart towards his Father in Heaven. In other words, the, the underlying spiritual meaning and message of the mitzvah are also included uh, by, by this Mishnah within the framework of our chapter. So it's not that difficult to understand then why Mishnachet is included uh, in the chapter. The conclusion of Mishnachet is a somewhat thornier problem. The conclusion of Mishnachet, after what would seem to be a quite a dramatic, agadic conclusion uh, to the chapter, uh, it seems a sort of afterthought at the end of uh, Paragimel to, to talk about who in fact it is who blows the shofar. That seems to have been left out of the earlier discussion. We talked about the shofar, we talked about how one hears the shofar. Uh, the Mishnah neglected to talk about uh, who blows the shofar and how. How the shofar is blown will actually wait till the end of Paragdalid. Uh, who blows the shofar is right here at the end of Paragimel, and that seems to be a rather strange placement of, uh, of that halacha. But the bigger, thornier problem in the chapter, of course, is the first Mishnah of the chapter. The first Mishnah of the chapter that concludes the discussion of Kiddush HaChodesh really seems to be uh, out of place. This indeed is one of the classic examples cited by the Mishnah scholar Yaakov Nachum Epstein, as a sterling example of how the chapter divisions were not actually original to the Mishnah, were not actually um, uh, intended by the Mishnah redactor, were added at a somewhat later stage, a few generations later, by Tanaim, who recited Mishnayot without necessarily always fully understanding them and certainly without giving very serious thought to where and how the chapters uh, uh, should be divided. Uh, we'll examine other possible approaches to uh, uh, why this Mishnah is in this chapter, not in the previous chapter, uh, further on, uh, probably in our next shiur. But what I'd like to address right now is the main body of the chapter. After we've seen the main body of the chapter, that, that will also help us uh, at the, the next stage to, to gain a deeper understanding of what surrounds the body of the chapter, namely Mishnah Aleph and the two parts of Mishnah Chet. 
The main body of the chapter, as we've noted, uh, discusses the laws of blowing the shofar. This is the main source in uh, the Mishnah for the laws of blowing the shofar. A few of the laws appear towards the end of Perak Dalid, but the, the main laws appear here in in uh, in Perak Gimel. And um, the Mishnah opens with a discussion of what kind of shofar should be used, and uh, Mishnah pretty much identifies the question of what kind of shofar should be used with the uh, parallel question of what is the origin of the shofar, from which animal is the shofar taken. The shofar is the horn of an animal. Uh, which animal? So Mishnah Bet tells us all shofarot can be used except for the horn of a cow. Um, uh, Rabbi Yosei disagrees and says the shofar of a cow can also be taken. Mishnayot Gimel through hay all talk about which shofarot seem actually to have been used, and, and it appears that the Mishnah is focusing on the shofar that was blown in the temple. Because when we read in Mishnah Gimel about the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, which was taken from a Ya'el, uh, which uh, is usually understood to be an Ibex, okay, sort of a, a member of the deer family with a very impressive... Uh, round, but, uh, round horns without, uh, without twists and turns. Um, so the, uh, uh, that's the shofar that's used, and, uh, the Mishnah immediately stipulates as well, ufiv mitzupezahav, that the mouth of the shofar is covered with gold. Uh, so we're clearly not talking about a shofar that uh, would be used by any person. We're talking about a special shofar, a communal shofar, and uh, uh, as we see from the immediate, uh, uh, immediately following line, and the two trumpets, the two chatzotzrot on either side, we know that uh, all of Israel had two chatzotzrot. Uh, two chatzotzrot made out of silver, and um, uh, these chatzotzrot were generally blown uh, only in the temple, uh, with one exception, they, they were also blown at uh, uh, at time of war. Uh, the chatzotzrot are, are the trumpets that are described in Bamidbar Perek, uh, Perek Yud. And we know that, uh, as the, R- the Ramban formulates it in his... Uh, 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 commentary uh, defending the reef, uh, the the milchamot Hashem. Ramban there notes that the chatzotzrot were uh, blown b'knufia uh, shall call Yisrael. Okay, we're in a gathering of all of Israel, which means either in the mikdash or at a time of uh, a gathering of natural of national uh, proportions, such as a uh, uh, a military camp that, that's going out uh, to battle. So, uh, the chatzotzrot here are clearly chatzotzrot of the temple. We're talking here in Mishnah Gimel about blowing of the shofar in the temple. It would seem that Mishnah Dalid likewise is talking about something that's either in the temple or, as uh, as would appear from the second chapter of Tanit, uh, directly outside the temple, uh, since we're talking about a Tanit, so 
the, the Tanit would not be done inside the temple, but would be done in close proximity uh, to the temple. Um, so the shofar that's used in the temple for Rosh Hashanah is the shofar of Eyael. The shofar for Ta'anit uh, is a uh, Zachar, means a, a ram. Kfufim, a ram's horn, as we know, has twi- twists and turns, and it is not just curved in one direction, but then it uh, bends over in another uh, uh, in another direction as well. So, uh, as well, so the Mishnah calls it kafuf. Mishnah calls it bent over. Um, so the shofar of Rosh Hashanah is of a yael. The shofar of a tanit is uh, a ram's horn, which is bent over. Uh, in Mishnah. The Tanakama who compares Yovel to Rosh Hashanah for Tkiyah and Brachot, even though the simple pshat of what the Tanakama says seems to be, he's comparing Yovel and Rosh Hashanah vis-à-vis the sounds that you produce from the Shofar and the Brachot that you pray, Tkiyah and Brachot is a theme that will uh, come back uh, to be a, a central theme in Perak Dalid, um, of, of the Mishnahs we'll see later on but uh, it, it, that would seem to be the pshat that we're talking about the sounds emitting from the shofar but uh, the fact that the Mishnah then brings Rabbi Yehuda who differentiates between Rosh Hashanah and Yovel in terms of which shofar is used for Rosh Hashanah uh, they would blow a ram's horn and in the Yovel they would uh, blow the horn of uh, uh, of a yael of an ibex seems to indicate that the uh, tanakama is understood by the mishnah redactor as referring to the kind of shofar that's blown as well. So these uh, four mishnayot bet gimel dalit hey are all talking about the kind of shofar that's used in mishnah bet in general in mishnayot gimel dalit and hey on three separate events. On Rosh Hashanah, Ta'anit, and uh, and on Yovel. Uh, Mishnah Vav then talks about the uh, wholeness of the shofar and what happens when when a shofar is cracked or uh, or, or has a hole in it. Uh, that's discussed in Mishnah Vav. Mishnah Zayin then discusses. Um, then discusses the uh, the hearing of the shofar. Uh, the first part of Mishnah Zayin talks about what happens if you blow the shofar into some kind of a uh, of a pit or or uh, some kind of a uh, a vessel that uh, uh, so that uh, the person hearing the shofar might hear not the shofar itself but hear the echo. In which case, says the Mishnah, he will not be will not fulfill the mitzvah. And the second part of Mishnah Zayin talks about the requirement of Kavanah. Okay? As the person hears the Shofar, as the Mishnah says at the conclusion, Afal okay? Unlike the Reisha of this Mishnah that talks about when what you heard was not the Shofar, but, but in echo, here, uh, both the person who fulfilled the Mitzvah and the one who didn't fulfill the Mitzvah both heard the shofar, but zekivain libo, the zelokivain libo. That hearing the shofar is not enough unless you also direct your heart to hearing the shofar. 
directing your heart means to have intention that uh, that what you're hearing is a shofar, and probably the Mishnah also intends the halacha of mitzvot tzrichot kavana, that you intend to hear, and you also intend uh, by hearing to fulfill the mitzvah uh, of hearing the shofar. So the laws then that make up the bulk of the chapter have to do with the uh, shape of the shofar and its source. Okay, that's Mishnayot bet through hey the wholeness of the shofar, the uh, uh, the need to hear the shofar, okay, and, and not hear an echo of the shofar, and the need to direct your heart to uh, 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 direct your heart to uh, 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 hear the shofar and to fulfill the mitzvah. And this is the bulk of the chapter. In preparation for the next shiur, give some thought to the question as to whether uh, what structure you can find in in these halachot. What's the logic of moving from the nature of the shofar to the wholeness of the shofar to the uh, need to hear the shofar and not, a, not an echo and to the kavanahs. There's some basic uh, guiding principle or structure that... Uh, um, that arranges these Mishnayot. Um, a further question to think about, is there any special reason why the Mishnah doesn't talk only about the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah, but brings the discussion of the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah within the framework of other Shofarot as well, the Shofar of Tanit and the Shofar of Yovel. And then finally, of course, uh, we'll tackle the uh, m- uh, much more thorny question of the opening Mishnah, what's its role in the chapter, and uh, the closing Mishnah. We'll come back to examine in somewhat more detail what the first part of the closing Mishnah is doing in the chapter, and uh, again, more naughty question of what the second part of uh, that Mishnah is, is doing in this chapter. So these are some questions to think about in advance of next year, and that's what we'll pick up with uh, in our next year.